0: Now, some people say, why is there so many Chinese entrepreneurs in the Silicon Valley? Well, there's been a long tradition of entrepreneurship in America for Chinese Americans, because for the longest time, they could not do any profession. They could not be doctors, they could not be lawyers, they could not be engineers.
1: Welcome, everybody. I'm Mark Peter Davis, Managing Partner of Interplay. On this podcast I interview innovators about their strategies, industries and decisions. This week I chat with Jiang Hu Wang, who also goes by Z. Z is the president at the Committee of 100. The Committee of 100 is a nonprofit based in the US that's a leadership organization comprised of members who are about 100 or plus prominent Chinese Americans. They are on a mission to help Chinese Americans thrive in the US and to develop stronger relationships with China. The group was actually founded by Henry Kissinger back in the 80s, around the time of Tiananmen Square. Beyond the Committee of 100, he has a long and distinguished career of serving to create bridges between the U.S. and China. He was a managing director at Intel, where he helped the company penetrate the Chinese market. He was a White House fellow, helping to advise on Chinese relations. And before the C100, he was the chairman of Business Connect China. Between Z's experience and his current role, we cover a lot in this episode. We discuss a brief history of the experience of Chinese Americans in the U.S. and how some of those struggles continue to persist today. We chat about the current state of U.S.-Chinese relations, whether or not the U.S. and China will end up going to war, and how much the U.S. and China differ with regards to their approach to tech and entrepreneurship. Z is absolutely brilliant, and he's very, very thoughtful. It's gonna be a great conversation. Enjoy. This episode is brought to you by Fireon Marketing. Firon Marketing is a full-service marketing firm providing high-quality, cost-effective solutions. They support companies in developing websites, creating content, email marketing, optimizing SEO, and managing ad campaigns on social media, Google, and beyond. What's unique about their approach is that they connect all of the marketing activities together to create a unified conversion loop and generate higher yield for clients. If you're interested in learning more, visit fireonmarketing.com. Welcome, Z. Thanks for being here today. Thanks,
0: Mark. Real pleasure.
1: So why don't we just start off by giving folks a little bit of context about what you do. Could you give just an overview of the Committee of 100?
0: Sure, sure. So the Committee of 100 was started about... 32 years ago, at the urging of Dr. Henry Kissinger. At the time, he approached a few prominent Chinese Americans, it was I.M. Pei, Yo-Yo Ma, and a few others, to start the Community of 100 as a nonprofit organization of Chinese Americans who are dedicated to to two key missions. The first is Chinese American inclusion in all aspects of American life. There's about 5 million of us. And then the second, to help foster a more productive U.S.-China relationship. So, the organization is a member based organization. We have about 130 members, members that folks may know, such as our chair, Gary Locke, who used to be ambassador to China and secretary of commerce, as well as Jerry Yang, who started Yahoo, or Eric Yuan, who started Zoom, or Stephen Chan, who started YouTube, amongst others.
1: Okay. Why did Henry Kissinger care about that? I mean, I'm sure he cared about a lot of things, but why was this an initiative he pushed for? It seems a little. Yeah, very Off good question. the narrative that you hear about Henry Kissinger.
0: Yeah, you know, re- we have to remember, 32 years ago was right after the Tiananmen Square incident. Mm. So the U.S.-China relations was at a, at a low, probably very similar to what's happening today. Right. And if, if everyone recalls, Henry Kissinger was very responsible for the renormalization of the relations between the two countries back in the 1970s. And so he felt that Chinese Americans, being Americans, but also having both a cultural and, and uh, a family heritage in
1: China, mm-hmm. could be a helpful bridge. Ah, very smart. Okay, very interesting. And so the, maybe we spend a minute on um, some of these missions. Uh, so you talked about uh, inclusion, Chinese Americans in American society. That's obviously a hot topic with the Asian hate and everything else going on right now. How has that evolved over time? What's holding that back? How, how do, you, what do you guys, how do you think about that? Kind of an open question yeah. for you.
0: So the committee actually commissioned a landmark studies uh, by the Economist Group uh, on the enduring contribution of Chinese Americans over the, hundred, the past 175 years. So the fact is, we as an ethnic community has been in this country for almost two centuries. Mm-hmm. Uh, but despite that, we are still faced with the perennial foreigner stereotype, right? So that no matter how many generations we have been in this country, several of our members have been here four or five generations. We're still seen as the perpetual foreigner, Hmm. a stranger in our own homeland. Now, the Chinese also um, has the unfortunate distinction of being the only ethnic community that has been singled out for exclusion in this country. So in 1882, America passed the Chinese Exclusionary Act, which forbid the Chinese to enter in this country, to be naturalized as citizen, to actually hold land, or to actually go into many of the professions we take for granted. So that act was not repealed until until 62 years later, uh, when the United States needed China to join in the fight against the Axis. So the Chinese actually had to endure about 62 years where they not only could not come to this country, but those who came had to endure second or third class citizen treatments.
1: That's a very untold story. I didn't even know about this uh, particular act. Um, What was the the thinking or rationale of the time outside of kind of overt racism?
0: Yeah, it's a good question. So back then, uh, many Chinese came because America needed labor especially to connect the West Coast and the East Coast. So the Transatlantic Railroad, many portions of that were built by the Chinese. In fact, the Chinese laborers comprised about 90% of all the laborers. And many of them later settled in uh, America after they contributed their labor. For example, Napa Valley, which many of us enjoy, uh, historians would say uh, it would be set back by at least 50 years, if not for the of the Chinese laborers who helped plant about 3 million vines in the early years. So the Chinese actually did a tremendous amount of work, not only on the railroads, but also in agriculture and farmland. And there, you know, we began to see the emergence of these stereotypes and the discrimination. So some of the uh, white workers uh, thought, well, the Chinese might be coming in to steal our jobs. Uh, So therefore, stereotypes of, well, the Chinese might be unclean. They might be carriers of diseases and viruses. What we experienced last year, through some of the rhetoric by, by our politicians, is actually not new. This happened more than 100 years ago, right? And so the Chinese were restricted to ghettos, or as we today know as Chinatowns, and many restrictions were placed upon them.
1: Ah, fascinating. This story isn't told in basic you know, American history and literature, um, I think we, we we all know of kind of the patterns of racism against immigrant populations and ethnic minorities, but the concept of actually preventing uh, home ownership after the World War, I know there was a Jim Crow South, there was still a lot of bad stuff going on, um, which there is today. But this seems very extreme to hear for how little attention it's gotten. So I, I'm fascinated yeah, by this. Yeah. So- Yeah,
0: no, this is very interesting. So in fact, Mark, one of the things the committee is trying to do now is to try to get Chinese American, Asian, uh, Asian American history to be taught as part of American history, Mm. because I think it is important for all of us to learn how, you know, many of our uh, ethnic communities have come and despite the challenges and, and discrimination have come to contribute and make this a better place for all of us, right? That, that history needs to be told so that, because there's so many lessons we can learn from there. I'll give you another example. You know, after the uh, Chinese Exclusionary Act, you know, the Chinese were purposefully forbid from not only having any profession, more importantly, they were, they were forbid to become entrepreneurs. Now, some people say, why is there so many Chinese entrepreneurs in Silicon Valley? Well, there's been a long tradition of entrepreneurship in America for Chinese Americans because for the longest time, they could not do any profession. They could not be doctors. They could not be lawyers. They could not be engineers. All these professions we assume, you know, to see a lot of Asian faces, they could not do. So what did they do? They became entrepreneurs. They were owners of restaurants. They were owners of laundry mats. But even there, you know, local uh, governments like San Francisco passed laws where they required licenses, specifically targeting the Chinese. So they say, okay, a particular uh, profession such as laundry laundromats require licenses, but then they wouldn't give out any license to the Chinese. So what the Chinese did was actually they banded together and they filed about five to 6,000 lawsuits. Several of them went to the Supreme Court. I'll give you a couple that actually has monumental effects for this entire country. Uh, one is uh, Wong Kim Ark versus the United States, uh, which basically stipulated that if you are born in the United States, you could be a naturalized, you could be an automatic citizen. Because what happened was um, the Chinese Exclusionary Act basically said, even if you're born here, if you're Chinese, you're, no, you're mm-hmm. not a citizen. Because Wang Kim Ark, now anybody who comes born in the United States is automatically a US, U.S. citizen. So that was very important. There was another um, lawsuit that basically said, and, and referencing what I just told you about the laundry laundromats in San Francisco, the Supreme Court basically decided that if a law on the surface seems to be constitutional, but in practice is used to discriminate one group or another, it is unconstitutional. So, in the 1950s, in the Board versus uh, in Brown versus Board of Education, they specifically referenced this case to say, you know what, separate but equal may sound equal in theory, but in practice, it's discriminatory, discriminatory, and therefore unconstitutional. So, in some ways, um, the Chinese have actually contributed quite significantly to the civil rights movement in the United States because of that period of 62 years of exclusion activities in this country
1: such an odd thing i wish people i wish the history was taught it feels like the patterns are so parallel uh malcolm gladwell's book um outliers talks about how jews weren't allowed to get certain jobs and as a result they started their own firms and it became a pathway for success and i think that is an entrepreneurial story in america right limited opportunities um, it creates a pressure cooker and forces people to achieve uh, who are the members of the organization? You said there was 136. Is this something that the broader community, either Asian Americans or allies, can join and support through membership dues? Or what's the, um, who is it open to?
0: Well, the organization is um, open to all American citizens of Chinese descent in terms of membership. You know, Obviously, anyone can come and support the organization, but membership is extended to American citizens of Chinese descent. Um, it is uh, an invitation-type membership, where uh, the committee looks for individuals who have made significant achievement, not just nation nationally, but hopefully internationally, who also harbor the same interest of giving back. For us, giving back is very important. So, not only have you had achieved certain success in your career. But to have the interest of giving back to the community, to making sure that the Chinese-American community, given especially our history, as I briefly illuminated, illuminated to you, that that community could become an inclusive part of America, as well as to, to help promote a more productive U.S.-China relationship. So for individuals who uh, agree with those missions, then the invitation is sent to them.
1: It's a lofty mission. The, the two prongs <laughs> very, that you described. Very, yes. And sometimes when I see organizations where the mission is too lofty, the action doesn't always follow, right? It becomes impractical or doesn't get operationalized properly. What do you guys actually do? How do you go from, you know, a group of people with a big idea to getting something done? What, what are you guys doing?
0: Yeah, that's a very good question. Now, I, I will say that in some ways, the mission is lofty, but very practical. I'll give you an example. What, what is the role of Chinese-Americans in U.S.-China relations? In fact, the last 40 years, Chinese-Americans have played a critical role in, um, in bridging in terms of divide between U.S. and China. So when China opened up, many times, multinationals from America, what did they do? They sent their Chinese-American engineers, their Chinese-American Managers, folks that they knew they can trust because they worked at the headquarters, but also knew China and understood the local environment to help set up shops to open businesses. I'll give you an example. One of our members, Shirley Young, who just passed away. You know, she was uh, the highest-ranking Chinese American or Asian American woman at General Motors. Mm -hmm. Help open up General Motors in China, and as you know, General Motors has consistently been the number one profit center for the entire company throughout the last several decades. And in fact, Buick is still considered one of the hottest selling brands in China today. And she was responsible for helping to open that. So Chinese Americans have played an incredibly important role in terms of facilitating the interaction, the communications and the investments between the two countries. Um, And so we have seen that. Now, today, the role is changing a little bit. The, because the relationship is changing a little bit. And what we believe is the role of Chinese Americans should be to help educate and to provide different perspectives so that as the relationship morphs, that those differing perspectives could all be incorporated. So that's that's one part. This, the, the, this, the first part about Chinese American inclusion in America, I think that's just an ongoing struggle. As you know, the African American... Latino, Jewish American, Native American communities all have their organizations, whether it be an NAACP or ADL or uh, La Raza, et cetera, that continuously fight for inclusion and increasingly not just for their own community, but for for all Americans. And so C100 has been one of the leaders in our community that has taken that role. And I think that is probably an ongoing role.
1: Could you break this down to a few initiatives? Could you just give me like, hey, we're targeting A, B, and C? Yeah.
0: Yeah. So let me tell you about how we realized those in a few initiatives. So for example, the first, uh, during COVID, we individually and separately gave out about $11 million in PPEs uh, to about 120 hospitals, obviously some to uh, hospitals where they have a preponderance of Asian-Americans but predominantly to actually African-American and Latino communities, because we believe that we're really together in this. So that's, that's one. Right. And, and as you remember, during the early days, uh, almost all PPEs came from China. And because of some of the bridges and relationships we have, we were able to get high quality FDA approved products mm-hmm. at, at, the, at, the, at the shortest time to those ho- hospitals in America who needed it, right? free of charge delivered to their doors helping to save lives so that's that's one example the second is as i told you you know we uh conducted landmark studies on the uh, contribution of chinese americans for example n95 mask most people know about N 95 mask it was invented by a chinese american Uh, so basically what we wanted to highlight was not just how discrimination impacted our community but about the enduring contribution across all these different sectors that Chinese Americans have been mm. able to make. And we have been able now to uh, uh, bring that data to more than 120 groups across the United States. And we are working now with, with various groups to turn it into curriculum, kind of like we just dis- discussed, so that teachers and students have an opportunity to learn a little bit more. As part of that, we were able to uh, work with 11 organizations, including uh, NAACP, ADL, AJC, National Urban League to uh, publish a joint declaration uh, on anti-Asian hate and violence. And then we worked with that group and Congress uh, to help with the passage of the COVID Hate Crime Act and the No Hates Act. As as you all know, uh, those were two of the few bipartisan acts that were passed as a consequence of the rise in anti-Asian hate and violence. So those those are a few few of the things I could probably go on for another five, 10 minutes.
1: Yeah, I'm sure you could. I'm sure you could. You're living this. Look, Z, you've got an incredible background. If you if someone goes through your LinkedIn or your CV, um, it's a laundry list of great brand names and logos. Why'd you choose to do this? Why is this what you're spending your time doing?
0: Yeah, that's a great question, Mark. You know, first of all, anything I've done pales in comparison to some of the work that our, our members have done. And I think both the membership and myself realize that, you know, in and, and this is best put by one of our members and who is a very well-known academic. And he said, you know, during the pandemic, he's walking on the street and somebody shouts at him, you know, to go back to his country. And he was, he was born in America, educated in America, has dedicated his life to, uh, to the service of this country. And the fact is we all realize that Even though we can take care of ourselves individually, perhaps there's a bigger purpose to give back to this community. And I think in giving back to our community, we not only make our communities safer and stronger, but I think we make our country safer and stronger. And I think today is one of those pivotal times. As you know, the census just came out. Asian-Americans is actually the fastest rising uh, minority population in America. Uh, In Mm -hmm. fact, in about 20 years. You know, we might be the largest minority uh, group in America, but in a sense, America is facing a pivotal moment, right? Of can we become that inclusive, uh, diversified community and nation that we've always talked about and dream of, or will those age-old differences and, and stereotypes continue to divide us?
1: I want to take a different tangent here. Um- because you you've got a unique perspective uh, from the role you're sitting in and with your background as well. Uh, I know you were at uh, Intel for quite a long time. You've been working in tech, um, you've got a very strong background uh, in that, but in addition to obviously the Chinese perspective, are there ways in which the c one hundred, particularly with you at the helm, is helping the tech community to navigate you know getting into China or companies coming from China, the US, do you bridge it on the, on kind of the commercial side at all, or is it only political and social focused?
0: Yeah. When it comes to us and China, our real focus is on people to people communications, because we think that when, you know, the world is going well, people like to communicate, Mm. but when the relationship is not going well, people to people communication is even more important. Mm. Right. And so in that sense, it's not uniquely focused on tech but it's really focused on key leaders, key opinion makers across all industries and sectors so that they really have a chance to understand the different perspectives. Uh, And then one of the key um, themes that always dictate our communications is how do you find common ground despite the differences? And if we could do that just in our small way to help folks find common ground despite the differences, We believe that that's a recipe for collaboration and, you know, impossible win-win situation. So
1: it's very social, political oriented. I'm getting that uh, loud and clear, uh, which I love, by the way. Um, I'm going to put a business spin on it for a second. There's a lot of Chinese family offices uh, navigating the tech community that I've encountered. And one of their pitches is that, hey, we'll put money into the company, but we're going to help bring this technology to China, either under a new entity or... You know, help you build a team there and commercialize it. That's one of the strategies we're seeing pop up more and more. We see it with a bunch of countries, but I think China is becoming increasingly the dominant one that's doing this, uh, just by the stance of my experience, because of the large populations there's a large market there, huge cultural and language gaps, but also a lot of infrastructure right, for manufacturing and otherwise that I think could be very appealing to some of the US companies. When you take all this into perspective, when I see these, com- these family offices out there for the entrepreneurs listening, is this a viable program? Have you seen this work with anybody? Um, have you seen that people successfully bridge companies from America to China? Uh, and if so, pitfalls or thoughts?
0: Oh, yeah. Tremendously. In fact, I think it's one of the smartest ways that an entrepreneur in the U.S. can leverage investments from China. I mean, we know that a few years back, before CFIUS became more stringent, I mean, Chinese funds were very, very active in Silicon Valley. In fact, many Mm -hmm. of the Chinese funds set up subsidiaries in Silicon Valley to not just invest in some of the hottest deals, but I think also to do what you said, to help them expand to another significant market in China. You know, there's a, a great firm that you know, Sequoia China. I mean, Sequoia China, mm-hmm. in fact, is kind of an independent company or independent firm that uses the Sequoia logo, right? And they, I think, have done a great job in terms of building some really amazing you know, national champions that are going global, like Didi being an example, right? But vice versa, I think they also benefited uh, a lot in terms of some of the uh, really interesting ideas they've learned from Silicon Valley. Now, the Sequoia uh, Silicon Valley office, I know because I've talked to them, have also benefited quite a bit with those connections in China because any of their portfolio companies that want to expand in China, obviously, they have a very trusted partner to help them. China is going to have a completely different tech ecosystem. Some of it is political by design, but increasingly, these will be two different tech systems, ecosystems. And if you're a company, a smart one that has uh, ambitions globally, you definitely want to be in on the number one, number two market in the world. And in that sense, you know, having a trusted partner is really, really important. I've seen it work many, many times, by the way.
1: How are the tech communities different? And why do you need uh, a local partner, right? Why can't you just raise a bunch of money from U.S. companies, send some people out there, hire locally and figure it out?
0: Oh. I, in my opinion, the smart people do all of the above. You know, Ultimately, a local partner is not your own people. You still need your trusted people. But mm-hmm. getting trusted people is not easy. Right? That's why you know, I hearken back to wh- what I said about Chinese Americans having played a very pivotal role in the development of U.S.-China relations. is because a lot of Chinese Americans are trusted. So for example, let's say an entrepreneur raises a bunch of money and he thinks, well, in college, I have this Chinese American friend, right? And his, his, his friend's father you know, does business in China. In fact, his father might you know, either reside in China or go, goes to China significantly. And he's like, well, my, this friend not only is pretty smart and he has that cultural connection, can I hire him to help me open up China? And what happens is that friend, Can then leverage the resources that's provided. For example, if there's another Chinese VC that's putting money, obviously the friend can then leverage that resource, right? This is how any successful entrepreneur does the work. They don't count on one element. They try to put as many elements and stack them up for success. And in my opinion, the ones that stack up the most elements
1: succeed. That makes sense. Okay. But what are the things that are different, right? I, obviously it's a different culture and a different language. Uh, You said before the tech community is a different construct. There's a it's political by nature. How does it function differently? Because I I think for a lot of people in the U.S. tech economy, you kind of can't imagine it being done any different in a a different way. Because it seems like it's just this is the only way to do it. It's a machine that it's a little bit of a pinball machine where all the pieces are bouncing together and they collide in the right way. Right? It's kind of organized chaos. Is there some other mechanism? That people should be aware of when they show up in China.
0: Yeah, um, first of all, I think the Chinese ecosystem is actually a lot more competitive and faster paced than America. Mm. Uh, people in general work really, really hard, and it's super, super competitive. And so, in that sense, I will, I will say, you know, even for the folks in Silicon Valley, they oftentimes, an almost uh, uniformly, that I've spoken to are amazed by how hard folks work in China. So, that is one. The second is China is a market, but it's also a market of many markets. So, there's the large cities that are very like America, you know, Shanghai, the Beijing, the Shenzhen, but then there are also the tier two, tier three, tier four cities that are significantly different in terms of you know, the usage patterns, et cetera. So I'll give you an example. Everyone has probably heard of Alibaba, right? Alibaba is kind of the Amazon of China and they're very well respected and does great work. But there's also a company called Pinduoduo, right? Which which came out of nowhere, but in the last few years has become bigger than Alibaba. Mm. Why? Because they cater primarily to the second, third tier markets, where they offer much cheaper wear at a reasonably good quality, right? So in China, there, it is also a market of several markets. So that might be the second distinction. The third distinction is we do have to understand the government plays a more active role in the tech ecosystem. Now, I do believe that increasingly the US government will likely play more and more of an active role because some of the things we've seen in the last few years but in China, the government does play a very active role. So it is almost impossible not to run into the government at some point if you're at some scale. So, those are probably three of the things uh, people should be aware of the, the, the extremely competitive nature, a market of several markets, and potential government
1: regulations. On the competitive side, are there things, why is it more competitive? Is it a cultural difference? I mean, we, we, we talk a lot about work-life balance in the States. Is that not part of the narrative yes. out there yet? Is there, <laughs> you know, is this um, part of evolving? What's, what's happening? Why, why is it more intense? You know,
0: I think in some corners, there's beginning to the talk about work-life balance. But I think by and large, people believe that you got to work hard so you can actually make a space or make a name for yourself. And if you don't, someone else will. Mm. We have to remember 40 years ago, I mean, I remember this, you know, I was born in China, came here when I was 10, you know, 40 years ago, we had one convenience store in a mile, uh, one mile radius. And the convenience store sold maybe about 10, 20 items. And in fact, when you go buy stuff, you use uh, ration coupons. So every month, you know, your ration to, you know, how many pounds of meat you can buy, how many eggs you can buy, et cetera, et cetera. So many people still remember that time of deprivation. And so I think there's still that hunger, that thirst of trying to get as much as possible, to make as much as possible for yourself, for your family, for your community. But I think the hunger is still
1: there. It's very interesting. I I want to talk about the government component as well. You've got... um... (sighs) There's there's kind of this uh, dualism, right? There's this perspective that I, I feel like the it's a bias in the media, uh, in the American media. Whenever I read something about the U.S. government getting more involved in anything business, the undertone is bad. Whenever I hear uh, about Chinese government getting more involved in business uh, or staying as involved in there, the undertone is bad, right? We're 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 told to think that it's all negative. Are there advantages where their government involvement has helped the industry, helped society, uh, in the way it regulates or even manages uh, the tech community?
0: Yeah, it's a really good question. So in my opinion, uh, different political systems are really um, people in different cultures at different times historical moments, trying to resolve similar issues, similar human challenges. And when it comes to tech, I actually think there's probably three big questions that every government has to try to answer. And not just the government, but the people as well. But in this sense, usually the government is the only power that's strong enough to take decisive action. The first is who controls data? We know that in the last century, oil was gold. And wars were fought over oil, the control of this precious commodity. Well, in this century, data is gold. But who controls it? Is it big companies like Facebook or Google? Or what control does government have over it? That's one. The second is, how big an influence do we give these big tech giants? I mean, in this country, we can see Facebook or Twitter could potentially influence the course of an election. The course of a vaccination campaign right the course of many things could be influenced on these social networks but who regulates and who controls these these tech firms and how they regulate themselves because by and large the idea has been self-regulation but increasingly we've seen that self-regulation may not be enough so who regulates and how do you regulate them? that's the second and then the third is really. Many of these tech companies have come up only in the last two, three decades. How much power do we give the owners of these tech companies? Whether it be a Jack Ma or Elon Musk or Mark Zuckerberg, I mean, these individuals could have tremendous power over the course of a democracy, over the course of you know the economy, over the course of even potential social unrest, right? So, who regulates them? I think these three questions, every single political system, every single government, every single people have to answer. And I think the Chinese government have kind of made their decision. And we're beginning to see the ramifications of some of those policy decisions, right? In terms of who owns the data, how how do you regulate the tech companies, and what are the roles of the tech company owners?
1: For the people who are kind of Getting the sound bites from the the media. What is the Chinese policy? There, you know, we hear that they're putting out this law or that, but there's some overarching, probably policy or, or mandate around how they're managing. What what is the understated, the underlying concept that the Chinese government is deploying against the tech community?
0: Yeah. So, in my opinion, it's still evolving. In my opinion, it's not crystal clear. But what is clear are a couple of things. The Chinese government is trying to prevent any big tech company to become too big to fail. Now, we learned that term in 2008, which basically meant banks that messed up the economy still has to be rescued because they were too big to fail, Mm -hmm. right? In some ways, tech companies have become too big to fail. And I think that the Chinese government is trying to ensure that no tech company becomes too big to fail. Uh, what's, what's an example of that? For example, and Financial, right? And financial uh, basically uh, became probably the largest depository of, of a repository of deposits, of consumer deposits. But not being regulated as a bank, not given the same type of you know, capital uh, uh, ratios, the same type mm-hmm. of regulatory controls as the regular bank. in effect, have become too big to fail. So I think the Chinese government is trying to regulate that. Second is, who controls the data? I think the Chinese government is trying to say that data in some small way belongs to the public. Now in China, the government believes that it represents the public. So it is trying to have direct access if not control to some of the proprietary data that companies always thought it was their own. And you know that for decades now companies have done this kind of trade-off with consumers right i let you use my stuff for free you give me your data for free. but by and large companies have thought of it as their own proprietary data so in, in china i think the government is saying it's not just company data this is data that in some ways is a public good and we want to regulate it and the last point is you know the role of the tech companies i think the government is trying to say has to be the same as many other companies within China, which is to uh, promote economic growth where the government thinks the direction should be focused in. Now, whether that's, again, I'm not putting right and wrong, good or or bad, on these uh, directives, but I think at least these are some of the key directives or the purpose of the directives undertaken by the government.
1: One of the big problems we have, which you know, uh, which you're fully aware of, is we have misinformation campaigns flowing through these social media platforms. Um, and as you said, they can change the outcome of a vaccination policy or even an election. What is China doing to regulate that? Because I think we're still here trying to figure out what to do and moving at a glacial pace. Is there a playbook that we can see in China for how to manage this? Yeah.
0: So so this is such a good question, Mark. And this gets to the fundamental question of in this world of where you can have fake tech, right, where you can basically create a video now that looks real, but that's completely fake, where you can basically, um, you know, create social bubbles, in which you can actually say almost anything, and people would believe it, because you have that social chamber of uh, that echoes every, uh, every statement that's made. Who do you believe? Do you believe the government? Do you believe traditionally trusted media outlets? Do you believe individuals that are closest to your network? Or do you just believe people who you want to believe? That is, I think, the fundamental question. And I think what the government in China is trying to do is to say, ultimately, the government is the one source you have to believe in. Because the government provides both censorship and regulation. On every other source of information. Now, of course, if you're skeptical and say, well, I don't believe the government, then I guess you can't believe in many things. Yet, if you don't believe in the government, you still have to answer the question of who do you believe in? And I think in, in the US today, that is the main struggle, right? Because today, some people don't believe the CDC, some people don't believe the FDA, some po- people who don't believe traditional media call them fake news. But in
1: that case, who do you believe? Right, but what's the mechanism for managing it? Right, so if I'm in China and the government has a policy X, and I want to say the exact opposite, and I go on the social media platforms and start telling everyone that it's not true, the government's lying, what are the mechanisms that you know, either remove my content or regulate me, or is that allowed? Because that's what's happening here.
0: Yeah, that's it. That's a good question. I think in China, you know, my understanding is most um, organizations having to do with media probably uh, do quite a bit of self-censorship. So they have, you know, folks in, in-house in that kind of look over content to see if they might be against the law. Because, you know, obviously there are content that we all agree would be problematic, for example, pornographic content content that promotes direct violence, content that's outright lie, right? So, it's, so just because you have censors, we, we should not automatically assume that it's just politically mm-hmm. sensitive content. I would say the majority of content that's removed is just stuff that we want it removed. I, and I would say probably a minority of the content is content we would say, well, should it be out there, right? Is, is this is something that people actually need to hear because it criticizes the government in a valid way? That's probably the the area where I think in China, you know, the government has the ultimate say. Now, but but does contrary information still get out? They do. Um, it just it's just probably more difficult compared to the U S
1: now is, is who bears the liability of that? Because I think one of the challenges faced by the social media platforms in the States is that if they start to regulate some of the content, they have to regulate all of it. And that's a lot of posts and tweets to scan through. <laughs> yeah.
0: Yeah.
1: So yeah, yeah. is it the responsibility of the platform? Uh, wh- where does the, where does the buck stop in China to make the system work? Or is it that, throughout the entire system, there's more, you know, there's more alignment on what around what the messaging is, so it needs less management.
0: Yeah, as you know, a big debate happened in the US is a repeal of one particular section, right, that, that, that denotes that social networks in particular, don't need to police their content, right, because they're just a gathering place. Whereas increasingly, people think that it's not just a gathering place, it's also the place that everyone gets, gets their uh, source of information. So you need to self-regulate. So in China, I think the decision has squarely been the organizations and companies have to self-regulate. And if they don't, they're uh, liable. And
1: there, how do you do it?
0: I mean, it's, a lot of it is increasingly through, done through technology, machine learning, big data. Okay,
1: fantastic. Taking a bigger picture on the relationship between U.S. and Chad. You alluded in the beginning to how we're, we're in a bit of a hot moment where uh, relations are at a low. I can't get my head around it. and I, What I mean by that is I'm not uh, an expert on this, but there's a lot of countries that do not have the same value system as America's, as America's values uh, supposedly are aligned with. Um, countries in all different continents human rights differences, there's uh, geopolitical differences, there's trade differences. Uh, So this is not new for us to have um, spiritual conflict with other populations and other governments. But it seems to me there is a very clear marketing campaign designed to make uh, most Americans be afraid of Or concerned about, or aggressive towards, or negative towards, whatever it may be, China. Uh, And some of those are based on policies that are real issues, and some of it seems like we're fighting them sometimes just to fight them. Where is that coming from? Is there is it is this something you're seeing as well? Because I I find myself being brainwashed by it, uh, consuming a lot of the, the headlines floating through my newsfeed, but then wondering. Um, you know, some of the issues, it, it's clear to me they're misaligned with their values. Others, it seems like we're, we're just being competitive because they're succeeding uh, economically. And I don't really have a problem with other countries succeeding economically. I think that's probably good for the world. So what's the, do, do you have any perspective on kind of what's happening with the U.S.-American relationship, the China-American relationship as we're undergoing this transition where China is becoming an economically dominant power? Yeah, that's a great question.
0: I, I think, um, well, you know, first of all, I think it's important for us to recognize and admit to the fact that the two countries are very different. Very, very different in terms of history. One is about, you know, 300 years at most. Another, both close to 4- 5,000 years of history. Very different in culture. One is probably more confusion. Uh, Buddhist in nature, the other is you know, Judeo-Christian, uh, harkens back to that Judeo-Christian tradition, and very different in terms of political system. So there's profound differences in, in the two countries. And we're not even talking about geography, development phases, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So we have to recognize that. And we also have to recognize that the two countries will be competitive in many areas. Extremely competitive in tech, in, um, in terms of economic development worldwide, investment opportunities worldwide, etc. And I think we also have to recognize that as a power that had assumed predominance in Asia for probably several millennia, China will think that it needs to reclaim its rightful place in Asia. And as, you know, the one superpower that has maintained world peace for the last 50 to 70 years, America does have its obligations to its traditional allies here, elsewhere, and in Asia. So it does set up uh, real potential for real conflict. These are all facts we cannot deny. But what's also fact is, you know, China is 1.4 billion people. It's really not going away. So any simplification of this to an ideological struggle between good versus evil, life, you know, right versus wrong, I think is just inappropriate. Because we have to find a way to deal with 1.4 billion people who in many ways have the same aspirations as us, want to have a better life for themselves, for their families, and want to have a better country and a better world to live in. Right? The aspirations are entirely the same. So I think the key, is, the key thing that all Americans should really think about is, how do we not turn this into another ideological battle? Because I think in, in America, and if you want to ask me, what causes this? I do think there's increasingly a conflagration um, or a conflation between policy and politics. Politics is about slogan right? Make America great again. You know, this is the enemy. Russia is the enemy. Terrorism is the enemy. It's easy because people remember that and they'll vote vote you for that. But policy a lot of times is very complicated. It's very nuanced. There's seldom black and white and you just have to make incremental progress. And I think increasingly what we're doing is conflating policy with politics. Now, the politics is China and U.S. is increasingly becoming a historical slash epic battle between autocracy versus democracy, right? But when you turn that into ideological conflict, there's really no right and wrong. Uh, there's really no nuances in the middle ground. There's only right versus wrong. It becomes a life and death struggle. So that's, that's the thing that I think is really, really scary for, uh, for America, especially since we're trying to get out of two decades of a war on terror, or do we really want to get into another war on autocracy, just right when we're getting out of you know, $2 trillion and and 20 years wasted in Afghanistan?
1: You know, it's, I think we, when we were talking before another time, uh, you had mentioned that historically 20 of the last 24 times there had been a transition of economic power from one country being the number one in the world economically to another. 20 of those 24 times that resulted in war. Uh, I'm a little bit of a history nerd. I remember, I think it was World yep. War I, reading about some newspaper articles that had said the world was too economically integrated after World War I uh, to have another world war. And lo and behold, we, we landed in World War II. The patterns have continued on economic integration. Uh, we're facing another economic transition from the U.S. to China, most likely going to be taking the number one seat in terms of economic horsepower. Do you think this has potential to result in war? Is that part of what's going on in the messaging, or is that you know is this just a, a ruse to kind of feel, to feed um, the military industrial complex in the states? Like, what's what is motivating the narrative we're hearing, or is it really just come down to brass tacks? We have ideological differences, and yeah. You know, it's going to be a a good guy, bad guy scenario that's not going to end well.
0: Yeah. I think ultimately, you're right. There's a real potential. There's a real potential for real conflict. And, you know, history has not provided comforting lessons on how to avoid those conflicts. It's it's very, very unfortunate. Um, I wish I could give you the reasons why and how to... Deal with the reasons. I mean, you mentioned some of the reasons. I've heard other people talk about some of the reasons. For example, you know, when you have a seven hundred billion dollar military budget, you know, you gotta have an enemy, right? Otherwise, how do you justify that money? Now I've heard that argument. Whether it's true or not, you know, it's I, I don't know, but I've heard that argument. You know, I I've also heard the argument in terms of, hey, look, we just cannot give up our economic position without a real struggle, right? Who willingly gives up, you know, the number one position without a struggle? We don't do that in our personal lives. You know, we don't do that at school. We don't do that at work. Why would we do that here? So, you know, I've heard that, you know, argument as well. of course, I've also heard the argument that this is one of those epic struggles between the West and the East. Uh, I think it was one of the uh, uh, former officials from the last administration that I mentioned this. How true that is, I don't know. What I do know is this, and I think the Biden administration is cognizant of this, is ultimately it's not a struggle between the two countries. It's a struggle to be better yourself. Right? If the U.S. remains divided, if the U.S. cannot grow by itself and continue to innovate, if the U.S. cannot solve some of the fundamental issues plaguing this country, there's nothing that you can do to stop its waning of influence and power around the world, right? And similarly, if China cannot solve some of its systematic problems, there's no way it could not just grow into the most powerful country, but also maintain that position, right? It has tremendous problems, like an aging population, an uh, uh, environment that still suffers from climate uh, uh, disasters. An environment that has been degraded because of the rapid industrialization of the past four decades, right? Both countries have tremendous internal problems. And I think to have that focus on each other versus trying to solve those problems, I think it's short-sighted, in my opinion. Now, the, the second thing is I do think one thing that U.S. has that has always been a strength is the innovativeness of its people, the ability to attract the world's best talents. And what I don't want to see is in this quote-unquote struggle with China, the U.S. starts to um, forget some of those key qualities that makes it special. And in China, what I see, in my opinion, to be more, should be more of a concern to America and the rest of the world than the government is the parents. Because in China, literally every parent I've met every single household I've met have spent the preponderance of their money on educating their kids. I mean, I go to China and I find little kids who play the piano, who play the flute, who draws, who fences, who swims, and who could speak three languages by the age of four or six. Because the parents have realized that's the only way to be competitive. And so they put so much energy on their kids' development. Now, not all of them will turn out to be geniuses, but I think many of them will turn out to be incredibly, incredibly capable. And when you have 50, 100 million such kids growing to be you know, uh, working adults, I think that's a force to be reckoned with. That's a real force to be reckoned with. So that, for me, should be something that America should, be, should take heed of. In some ways, hopefully America should benefit from because many of those kids actually come to the U.S. Right. To, to study. Quite a few of them uh, stay in the U.S. and and make the U.S. the home. So the U.S. should be able to benefit from that. But the U.S. should be very cognizant that, in my opinion, that's the single most powerful force that's going to drive the Chinese economy going forward. Because in the end, governments, and I do agree with this, it's very hard for government to innovate and create innovative businesses. Individuals do that. The governments can facilitate that, but ultimately you need highly capable people to, uh, to staff those organizations. In fact, you need highly capable people to staff governments as well.
1: Z, we've covered a bunch of different topics today, um, kind of all around the same nexus. If, if you could make one ask of the people listening, who are probably likely largely Americans and likely largely entrepreneurs or in and of the tech community, what, could, what should people be thinking about or doing to bring forward a better future?
0: Yeah, exactly what you're doing, Mark, which is to really host and to promote people-to-people communications. Again, in all of my conversations, I try not to say who's right, who's wrong, who's better, who's worse, but to just say that, hey, we're facing a similar set of challenges, probably historical challenges that we never faced before. Like you said, you know, what is the role of tech, uh, global climate change? a global pandemic, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. How do we come together, the brightest and and, and the smartest people from these two significant countries to perhaps come together to solve some of these common problems? And how do we get out of the old ideological framework, this framework that dates back to the Cold War, this framework that perhaps dates back to stereotypes that existed more than two centuries ago now about the yellow peril you know, about the disease uh, that comes from abroad, right? How do we get past that so that we can hopefully uh, enter into a dialogue to solve some of these common challenges? That for me, and I think for the committee is uh, what we're really interested in, and we're constantly looking for allies and friends to help us embark on that journey.
1: See, thanks for being on today. This is terrific.
0: Thank you. It's always a pleasure speaking with you, and I look forward to our lunch.
1: Great conversation today with Z. I really enjoyed veering a little bit from straight entrepreneurial conversation, talking a little bit of politics. I hope that was interesting to everyone listening. Uh, If you liked what you heard, please hook us up with a like or a five-star review and feel free to share with a friend. You can find me on Twitter at MPD. And to hear more of my conversations with innovators, subscribe on YouTube, Facebook, or any major podcast platform. Just search for Innovation with Mark Peter Davis.